You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The condition seems to have been that you will only meet the people we want you to meet. And one of the selling points was you're going to meet the Prime Minister of India. So obviously the people who flock to India seem to be the far-right MEPs. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi welcomes far-right MEPs to Kashmir, while an Angela Merkel trade meeting is also on the horizon. My guests Dr Tessa Shishkovitz and Kapil Komaredi will discuss this and other news, including Twitter bans political ads from its platform, but do we trust the idea of a big tech ombudsman? And perhaps unsurprisingly, Notre Dame has made it onto a list of the world's most at-risk monuments. But does this really help? Plus... It's quite the same as in news weeklies for grown-ups. There's everything from climate change to the Hong Kong-Beijing standoff. We'll hear about a hopeful development in print media. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for Profile, and Kapil Komaredi, journalist and author of Malevolent Republic, A Short History of the New India. And it is in India that we start, where there has been an amount of outrage over the visit to Kashmir of a group of members of European Parliament drawn largely from the far right. They were a debatably tactful choice of first international delegation to visit Kashmir since India's government revoked its special status in August, imposing a curfew and a communications blockade. One of the MEPs stressed to local reporters that they were not Muslim-hating Nazis, though if you ever find yourself needing to make this clear, it might be worth taking a bit of a look at yourself. Um, Kapil, they did meet with Prime Minister Modi before going to Kashmir. Is there any way at all he didn't sign off on this? No, this is definitely... uh, This was organised. The payments for it came from something called the Institute for Non-Line Studies, and the office that, for that that sounds excitingly <laughs> nebulous. The the, <laughs> the the offices for that, uh, no one has been able to locate them. And once they found them, uh, the gates were shut. And the person organising uh, who's organised this is uh, an unknown Indian origin uh, functionary, a wheeler dealer, uh, based in Europe. Who we don't know whether she runs a think tank or is a lobbyist. And she reached out to several MPs. Uh, some of them expressed interest uh, interest to travel, but the condition seems to have been that you will only meet the people we want you to meet. And one of the selling points was you're going to meet the Prime Minister of India. So obviously the people who flock to India seem to be the far-right MEPs. Uh, it all sounds entirely transparent and above board. Um, Tessa, the EU Parliament uh, has taken pains to stress that this visit has been a personal one rather than a political one. Um, we'll come back to what might be in it for Narendra Modi. What is conceivably in it for these MEPs made up, but not exclusively, it has to be said, of such groupings as the Front National from France and Alternative for Deutschland from Germany? Well, there's a political level, I would think, the far right in Europe has a dreadful tendency of liking to hang out with strong men of uh, of uh, uh, big nations that like to 
look at their minorities in a in a way that uh, not everyone in Europe would agree. And so for them, it was maybe not such a difficult thing to say yes to a visit like this and to have a look at how India handles a Muslim majority uh, minority uh, part of the country. And uh, on the economic level, it's interesting to think if there is a direct connection there between an MEP from from the AFD and economic benefits from it. I don't know if Modi will sort of give them special contracts. But in general, of course, it's always interesting in being in contact with a prime minister of one of the most important um, economies in the world. And this is not that not doesn't go only for far right MEPs from the European Parliament, uh, but also for European governments. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if you do have contact. The question of this visit was if you go on their terms and then be a kind of um, you know that they can always say like oh we had an official visit of the of the European Parliament so everything's fine with us. I mean that was a political problem. Having economic ties is is something that, that every leader of a country in Europe has to discuss with uh, herself or himself and usually the answer is pretty pragmatic. I mean, you have to do business deals. Mm. Um, Kapil, if Narendra Modi regards the European political landscape, would he see Front National and the AFD as his natural kinfolk? Is is that how we should be thinking of his party, the BJP? I think they, they there is certainly an alignment. They see many of the luminaries of the emerging far right in Europe as sympathetic to their cause. They see themselves as besieged by hostile Muslims and these European far right emerging luminaries agree with that. So there is that alignment. But this particular act was staged for Indian consumption, for domestic consumption. To put it very crudely, what Modi needed was a bunch of white people descend into <laughs> India and say that everything is wonderful. So he could then circulate that amongst his supporters on WhatsApp and say that, look, I've got the blessings of Europeans. European MEPs have come to India and said everything is fine in Kashmir. So don't you don't need to worry about that. This was the real need. And there was a, there was a demand in India and there was supply in Europe. Just to follow that up, though, Kapil, Narendra Modi is presumably finding a way to square in his own head the fact that the MEPs whose favour he is soliciting here, I think it's fair to say, are not on the whole known for their own enthusiasm for migration to Europe from South Asia? Uh, he probably is aware of that, but I don't. I don't think he gives a fig about that at the at the moment. Right now, he his his incompetence is becoming public knowledge. He claimed that he has he revoked three seventeen Kashmir the article, giving it autonomy in order to combat terrorism. But terrorism has actually spiked. There were five people killed yesterday. Mm. Um, so he has to put. He has to glamorize what is happening there, and nothing does it better than bringing foreigners in suits and showing them on the houseboats in Dal Lake, having a great time and saying, what a jolly good place this is. Uh, Tessa, there were some extremely weird images from this trip, including this delegation taking the boat ride on Dal Lake, as tourists used to do in Kashmir, back back when tourists were able to go there. Um, What does it tell us, and I suspect the answer to this question is obvious, that one of the MEPs on this trip, a Liberal Democrat uh, from the UK, very much not of the far right, uh, said they would accompany the trip if they were allowed to go and talk to whoever they wanted to talk to in Kashmir, and they had their permission to travel to Kashmir rescinded? Well, that's that's the answer really to your question. <laughs> you can only come if you follow the official line. But 
you know, it's Angela Merkel is coming today mm. on an official visit. You know, the the partners for Modi are Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, sort of the prime ministers. So you're totally right to say um, that it's a political thing and it was done for the gallery to have this these images uh, in India. It's not a big subject here in Europe also, this Uh, trip uh, of these far-right MEPs because people figure they always do that. You know, we had far-right Austrian MEPs going to observe the Crimean referendum in 2014 (laughs) when Putin annexed uh, annexed Crimea. These are uh, things that happen all the time that it's more in the benefit also of these far-right politicians that are sitting in the European Parliament or in some local governments. Um, and national governments to be seen with uh, their idols uh, than the other way around. I mean, for Modi, this is not uh, internationally a huge success to have brought AfD uh, uh, MEPs uh, to Kashmir. But he will be able to talk to the German chancellor about huge business deals. And there is that is a much more also interesting question if she mentions Kashmir in these conversations. And Angela Merkel, for example, has quite a good record in standing up for European values when she goes on these visits. Mm. She also has a certain economic might herself behind her back to do so. But she's she has always had a relatively uh, straight spine in these things. If it's going to Saudi Arabia or going to Turkey or going to uh, India, China is a very good client also for having a frank talk on human rights. So we will see how she does uh, at this trip. Uh, Kapil, just as a final thought on yep. this one, yep. how big a story is this visit regarded as by Indian media, even or perhaps especially the Modi-friendly media? Because, of course, from a European perspective, MEPs, especially far-right MEPs, are not really regarded as significant figures. There are, of course, not insignificant numbers of Europeans, especially here in the UK, uh, who don't even know who their MEP even is. But it, will Modi's media actually report this as if it's a big deal? Yeah, here's the thing. Indians are xenolatrous people. They they crave, especially the nativists among uh, the, the people Modi represents, they crave foreign approval. So this mm. this is a huge thing for them. Within the media, there is a bifurcation. There are people who are critically assessing what has happened. And then there are people who are mostly saying, you know, this is a, this is a setup. And we need to investigate this further. But the most outrageous thing is that Indian MPs have not been allowed to visit Kashmir. Three of the chief ministers of Kashmir, former chief ministers in detention, the leader of the opposition, the former leader of the opposition, Rahul Gandhi, flew to Kashmir and he was not allowed to go beyond the airport. The fact that you're allowing far-right European MEPs to come to India to visit Kashmir, but you won't allow your own elected representatives to go there... That shows you the state of India better than anything else, I think. Kapil Komaredi and Tessa Shishkovitz, thank you both. We'll be back with more from both of you in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Marcus Hippie is here with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The US House of Representatives has voted overwhelmingly to approve the next stage of the impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump. The resolution formalizes the inquiry into whether the president sought the assistance of a foreign power to undermine his political opponents and will now allow for more stages of the investigation to be conducted publicly. President Trump responded via Twitter that the investigation to a witch hunt. 
The U.S. military has published the first footage of the raid in northern Syria that resulted in the death of the leader of the Islamic State group. The video shows troops on a helicopter firing at militants as they flew towards the compound where Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was hiding. Australia's Aircraft Engineers Association has called on Qantas to ground its Boeing 737 fleet after cracks were discovered in one of its planes. The carrier has announced it would be checking more than 30 of its Boeing 737NG aircraft after cracking was found in one plane during a maintenance check. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Tessa Shishkovitz and Kapil Komareddy. And let's now contemplate whether a measure of credit is due to Twitter, an organisation which has done so much to reduce the public discourse to a ceaseless reenactment of the closing scene of Blazing Saddles. Twitter has announced that it intends to ban all political advertising from anywhere in the world from its platform. This will not, regrettably, prevent legions of attention-seeking Yahoo's opinion-honking nitwits and some grandstanders shilling for their preferred cause or candidate on their own time. But Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey has explained himself by saying that political reach should be earned, not bought. Uh, Tessa, basically, is this a good thing? Well, it's a little bit, it sounds to me like a panic reaction, actually, to something that is happening and we don't know exactly how to deal with it. We need laws, probably, to deal with social media and political influence and how it's being asserted. Mm. If we can now just ban all political advertising, also means what is a political ad? Are politicians now not allowed to Twitter? Is it parties that not are not allowed to, to pay for things? The, the real thing is that companies buy data of Facebook in order to reach um, their um, voters and influence them in their direction. So how can we deal with that? That's that's the big cake, is Facebook and data analytics. So um, I'm not sure that banning all political ads will really do it. And I... Um, I was yesterday at a meeting of Best of Britain where they explained to us that their campaign won three remain seats in the European elections. And so it goes both ways. You know, we cannot, I think, completely exclude social media nowadays from political campaigning. It's just not going to work. Couple, do you think it will make a practical difference to anything? You know, one of the things Twitter has done is it amplified virtue signaling. And I thought Jack Dorsey's timing was full of virtue signaling. <laughs> his rival, Mark Zuckerberg, is in hot water for allowing lies to be spread on Facebook, allegedly. And Jack Dorsey comes out and says, we will not take ads. What could be more Twitter than that? That is massive virtue signaling. This is a platform that has failed on multiple accounts to stop threats from being issued against vulnerable people. Uh, and for them to come out and claim that they are going to be uh, the models of uh, good speech is quite extraordinary. But I just finished reading a book, which I would urge everyone to read. It's called The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour. Uh, a previous guest on Monocle 24, yeah. and it is a very good book. And I, I would urge everyone to read that because it, it says that on average, all of us spend 157 minutes a day, uh, average adult, on our screen going through this. So I would say... I, it's inspired me to rethink my use of social media, um, and I think it would be better to quit it and actually engage with people in the old ways that, you know, let's have a drink, Andrew, and <laughs> talk about stuff, rather than have a go at each other on Twitter and, you know, broadcast how virtuous I am compared to you. 
Um, Tessa, this this has been a big story, uh, obviously, that Twitter is going to decline political advertising. Is the fact that it is such a big story symptomatic of the fact that the media does tend to overrate how important Twitter actually is, uh, given that Twitter is, to a huge extent, journalists, and I do not exclude myself from this, uh, wasting their own time by footling about on Twitter? Well, for us... It, Twitter is also really useful. Don't forget it how can be, useful it is. It's not only a platform where people get shamed and um, destroyed, but it also gives us a lot of really lively political debate. I mean, the, even Donald Trump's tweets sort of are a direct way of, uh, at least in one way, you can see what he's thinking. He's not so interested maybe in what I'm thinking. So Twitter is sort of sometimes a one-way street. But it's a very direct way of um, understanding politics. So it's not... I don't think you can just ban it or you can just go back to how it was and have a cup of tea. You can have a cup of tea, but you can still use Twitter or Facebook or any other social media platform to find out what people think. We just have to be aware of the dangers and think how we limit these dangers or how we understand how political campaigning works. You know, the Twitter messages, the small spinned um, messages, message controlled by government uh, media departments. That's really where the power lies nowadays and less in editorials in in big national newspapers that people don't read anymore. Uh, so we have to see how we adapt to this as journalists, as medias, but also as lawmakers. And in that sense, I think it's, a, it's, it's an important decision of Twitter. I don't know if it's very effective, but at least it shows that there's an uneasiness in, the, in these companies that they know they have a lot of power and they don't know exactly how to limit the abuse of it. Kapil, uh, there is a, a cynical interpretation of Twitter's move here. And in, in, before getting to the cynical interpretation, Interpretation, we should acknowledge that this will doubtless mean a, a bit of a whack to Twitter's revenue. They are turning down business by, by making this rule. But is there a sense among the Dorseys and Zuckerbergs that a, a legislative reckoning is coming, that they, they have been able to do as they please for a long time while uh, various overseers have figured out what social media even is and the effect that it's ha- happening? And they're trying to preempt that point at which someone which I still think is my own preferred resolution of this, decides that, no, you're publishers. You are a a publishing house and you are as responsible for what appears beneath your masthead as the Washington Post. Yeah, the largest publishing house in America is not any newspaper, it's Facebook. And I I think you've put your finger on this. Uh, It's a preemptive move, I think, by Twitter to, to appear more virtuous, nobler than Facebook. I think how we adopt to this... We've, I think, already adopted to Twitter in that there are cabals of journalists, there are trolls. You know, our, the world as it exists has all is reflected on Twitter, but the worst of it is amplified on Twitter. I think it's best to limit our use of it. I really strongly feel that if, you, if you're going to go back to having harmonious communities. Twitter, give a man a mask and he will reveal his true self, Shakespeare said. <laughs> uh, and Twitter has done that. I think it's better to impose some civility by withdrawing from that platform. 
Okay, well, finally on today's news panel, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris has been placed on the register of at-risk sites maintained by the World Monuments Fund, a non-profit which protects cultural heritage. This does seem something of a statement of the obvious in this instance. Notre Dame was, of course, badly damaged by a fire in April. The 25 monuments on the WMF's list received a grant towards their upkeep and also include Easter Island, the Sacred Valley of the Incas and the Woolworth Building in San Antonio which contains one of the first lunch counters in Texas to serve both white and black customers. In 1960, that was. Um, Tessa, the money is obviously useful. It's not a fortune in the grand scheme of things, but it's better than nothing. Uh, But the money aside, do do lists like this help? Do they attract enough attention to the, the monuments on them? I have high respect for all of these organizations because um, as the list that you just read to us now shows, they're really, it's a very good thing to try to protect, uh, you know, world heritage, cultural heritage um, from destruction. The Notre Dame decision now I would think is maybe not the most important uh, issue because we can trust the French government I think to Mm. put a lot of money and also private donors in order to rebuild this national um, you know icon of of, of, uh, France I'm always more worried about world heritage being destroyed in conflict zones and if you remember how the Taliban um, wrecked the, the Bamiyan, the Bamiyan yeah. um, Valley and, and all these kind of things. So this is when, or also even, you know, in Alexandria during the um, Egyptian Arab Spring and backlash of it. It's This is where, where we, sh- I think the UNESCO or the UN international organizations, a lot of thought, money and political will should be uh, put up in order to protect um uh, you know, sites that are under threat of to be destroyed and you can't rebuild them. And Notre Dame will be rebuilt as good as possible. It was a natural disaster that nobody wanted, of course. Yeah. It does seem weird in that respect that Notre Dame is on the list. As you, as you correctly point out, Tessa, it's not like France was ever going to, to bulldoze the remains of it and, and you know replace it with a car park. Um, Kapil, is the the problem that there's not really any way of establishing any hard and fast rules about what should be preserved and what shouldn't, that everything is case by case, and that's why there's always an argument. Well, who decides what the 25 sites should be, right? There are far more, there are many more sites that need to be preserved. I think it's extremely important for people to have a connection to their past. If you lose your past, you lose the ability to assess yourself and determine a course for your future. Uh, there's one of those is a Jewish market in Bukhara. Uh, people wouldn't know that, that there was a thriving Jewish community. If you preserve that, you will know your history. You'll be less susceptible to the kind of bigotries that have taken over Asia. Um, I think I'm, I welcome this. I think any effort to preserve heritage should be applauded. All of us should preserve heritage. I come from a country where wherever you walk, there is heritage rotting away in Delhi, in Jaipur, in southern India. It's It's very painful to witness that. In a, and this is happening at a time when we have a government that is saying that we are we are reviving the glory of ancient India, and right around us everything is falling apart. So it's very important to stay in touch with your past. But I think we should have far more than twenty five. There are many many sites that need preservation. Tessa Shishkovitz and Kapil Komaredi, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, a future generation of readers will hear about the latest in children's news. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. 
This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, a view from our editorial floor as Monocle's culture editor Chiara Ramella has good news from the print industry. Who said the next generation is no longer interested in print? Italian magazine Internazionale, a wonderful weekly title that collects and translates the best stories from the international press, is moving ahead with a title aimed only at younger readers. Following a couple of trial specials, Internazionale Kids launched in its monthly incarnation this October and its second issue is on newsstands now. Other countries have already woken up to the potential of smart kids' mags. In Germany, both Süddeutsche Zeitung and Die Zeit have their own Nippers versions in the form of their Kinder Weekend Insert and Leo respectively. Internazionale Kids, like its grown-up parent, syndicates stories from other publications. It can only exist thanks to this transnational network of excellent childhood titles. What's better, this new generation of mags doesn't talk down to the young'uns and it doesn't try to catch their attention with plastic toys. Pick up the latest copy and you'll be pleased to find that what's setting the agenda in our children's world is quite the same as in news weeklies for grown-ups. There's everything from climate change to the Hong Kong-Beijing standoff. The readers of the future are much more clued up than we think. That was Chiara Ramella, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machelari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>